We're going to have the reading of a text of Matthew 1. You can start turning there, Matthew 1, 18 to 25. And then after that, we're going to try to be quickly uh, condensing one of the lectures I, I gave in the DR when I visited. As for a friend of mine, where's the pagan, pagan version of Christmas? And then coming to the biblical side of it. That first part is going to be really fast. But I'll try to cover that for your sakes, but especially for the sake of your children. Uh, my heart many times has in mind the young people when they get into college and they start getting bombarded with these expert ideas that try to debunk everything you've learned at home. And hopefully we'll, we'll tackle some of those things in that beginning part. It's going to be really fast, uh, but we'll take a shot. And then we'll preach, because if I don't preach, I would not be a good Reformed Baptist. And it would be blasphemous not to preach a sermon on a Sunday. So anyways, let's pray and read. Father, bless the reading of your word. Bless the time together, the time of exhortation and of learning. Be glorified. May Jesus be exalted. And may your spirit be with us, illuminating the word, illuminating our minds as we hear, helping the one who speaks. For the glory of Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Matthew 1.18 Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, excuse me, he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That text introduces Messiah. That text is very much read this time of the year during the Christmas season. Now, is is Christmas feast Christianized paganism? Is it paganized Christianism. What is it? What, 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 is, what is it with the Christmas time? Or is it both? The word Christmas comes from the Old English, the Mass of Christ, Christ Mass. In Spanish, Navidad, Feliz Navidad, you've heard Cheo Feliciano's song, you know what Navidad means. <laughs> Nativita, birth, comes from the Latin for birth. Noel is a French word also for birth. Now, was Jesus born on December the 25th? There are some common lies out there that I want you guys to be aware of, especially those of you young people heading into college and this professor with 150 titles after his name tells you, oh, you know, Horus, Osiris, Addis, Zoroaster, Krishna, Mithra, all of these Pagan gods have their birthday on December the 25th, and Christianity is just the latest guy 
to the party. That what you've been taught, it's a lie. Now, when you read that in the, in the yellow square, that if Jesus, if he actually lived, when you read that, you say, okay, this is absolute non- nonsense. Because to deny the existence of the historical figure of Jesus Christ is preposterous. But that's out there. It's a popular imagery that floats during Christmas, and you kids go to college and they say, oh, so my Christianity is a lie? They just invented Christian Christmas to make money? Not true. Those heathen gods mentioned there didn't celebrate their birthday on December the 25th. Horus is believed to have been born in the summer. Mama, you can move the, the chart. Zoroaster, no recollection of his birthday. Krishna, perhaps, was born in August. Adonis or Hermes, they do not have any birthdays. So when you read somebody telling you that all of these gods celebrated on December the 25th, don't take it at face value because the guy has a double PhD in compared religions. Because it's not true. There was no December 25th before the Gregorian calendar to start with. So that date is even a modern date. Now, what's the pagan tradition? Well, there is a pagan tradition that was celebrated around this time of the year and that predates Christianity. The Babylonians celebrated the rebirth of Nimrod, the husband of Semiramis. And Nimrod appears in the Bible twice. He appears in Genesis as a mighty warrior before God. And in First Chronicles, in the recount for those exiles who returned to the land of, of Israel, he appears as one of those valiant of old, of antiquity, and of earth. And yes, Nimrod was a great-grandchild of Noah. So it was a real person who died, and he had a child, according to Babylonian and Egyptian mythology, with his mother, Semiramis, in an incestuous relationship, and that child was Horus. And the legend says that the child was conceived by the spirit of Nimrod. Now, what did they celebrate around this time of the year? December 21st is the shortest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. You've heard the word solstice. Yes, because it is the day when the sun shines the shortest for those who live north of the equator line, and they celebrated in those days that the God-son would awake from his sleep and would sort of be reborn, and they would start with solstice celebration from December 21st and on, the days start to become longer. The Romans celebrated that solstice. They inherited it from other tribes. The Greeks also, because Romans and Greeks were not tribalist in their religions. They would conquer people and they would follow or they would incorporate the religions of those conquered. Because they were not tribalist, those celebrations would trickle into their empire and into their, and, and part of their culture. Now, Mithraism, that was very prevalent and popular in the first centuries of Christianity, yes, it celebrated the Iranian sun god, which was a version of the Egyptian Ra, which was a version of the Babylonians. 
And yes, they celebrated solstice around December 21st. So yes, yes, heathen god celebrations existed during this time of the year, and they predated Christianity. That's a historical fact. The Feast of Saturnalia, they were feasts during the winter in which the Romans celebrated Saturn as their god of fertility and of agriculture. And the festival was kind of long, probably more than a week, maybe 10 days. It started around what today is December the 17th and lasted until December the 25th or more. It was a celebration of the winter of the winter solstice. Now, many of you remember the movie uh, of, of uh, Da Vinci Code. And in the novel from Dan Brown, which is a novel, he writes the pre-Christian Mitra called the Son of God and Light of the World, born on December 25th, died and was buried in a tomb carved on a rock and was risen on the third day, December 25th, or the 25th of December is also the birth of Osiris, Adonis, and Dionysius. That's a lie. But hey, it came in the Da Vinci Code. So Christianity is the imposter, the invader, the changer of things, not true. That's a flat-out lie, and there's nothing in common, nothing between Mithraism and Christianity. And if you want to know, go check the, the, fathers, the, the fathers of the church, that period of the first and second century, how they wrote against Mithraism. So those things are flat-out lies, but somebody writes a novel, puts it on a book, and people take it at face value, and now all of a sudden Christianity is this, this hoax that has been invented by the Roman Catholic Church, but it's all a lie because the real books are out there, but they don't want you to know which they are. And people drink that hook, line, and sinker, and I said it right, Troy. <laughs> what about the Christmas symbols? Christmas tree. What does that celebrate? That evergreen tree. Well, Nimrod would come and visit Semiramis every year. And the mythology said that this dry stem became green again at the visit of Nimrod, who would come with gifts to commemorate the birth of their son, Horus. And the tree was Christianized later in Germany. They added candles to symbolize the light of the stars, and they would basically cover pyramids and paint them green. And yes, the Christmas tree is a pagan, heathen symbol. The mistletoe, it was also a, a, a Celtic symbol that would be used as an antidote for venoms or for poison. It was also used as some kind of symbol for peace and fertility. The mistletoe is also a pagan symbol, the Yule log. They would take these dry logs, lit them in celebration of the sun and the sun of the, the light of the day is coming back. So let us invoke the Godson by lighting these logs. And yes, Christian Christmas was Christianized. There is a mention, the first time that history records the birth of Jesus on December the 25th appears on a Roman calendar year 336. That year happened after two important edicts, the Edicts of Tolerance and the Edict of Thessalonica. And those two edicts made Christianity common, popular, acceptable, and legal. So, 
calendars now started to make reference to Christ, there's one from the year 336 that says, oh yeah, Jesus was born on December the 25th. Pope Julius I decided to counter the pagan celebrations of Saturnalia, which were really orgies. I mean, it was pure debauchery. It was a disaster. It was the Rio Carnival. For those of you who've heard of the expression or know what that is, it, the Pope tried to counter that those cultural expressions of excess and dissolution by saying, well, Christ was born on December the 25th. And that's when this Christian feast is sort of Christianized or institutionalized. But the truth is that there is no date in Scripture attributed to the birth of Christ. There's no New Testament prescription or commandment or example, nothing that deals with we must celebrate Christian. Christmas. Let me say something about, if you want to call this season the season of Advent, and people love that. Yeah, I learned that in Roman Catholic Church. Those are, those are church seasons that have been invented by men. So when somebody, even though he's very famous and popular, and everybody reads his book, says, let me give you these instructions for preparation for Advent. Thank you. I don't need them. Because there's nothing in the New Testament that prescribes Advent or preparation for Advent. Now, if you choose to do that as part of your walking with Christ, awesome. It's your liberty to do that. Amen. God bless you. But don't bring it to me as you need to do this if you to be a good Christian. No, I don't need to do anything to be a good Christian in Christmas. Because it is not prescribed. It has never been prescribed. Let me give you some information that perhaps may be disturbing. There couldn't be sheep pasturing that cold of a night. Not likely that on December the 25th, and perhaps their temperatures were not freezing, but there were, they were pretty nippy. You would not have pastors or shepherds pasturing that time of the year. Luke tells us that Jesus was born during Quirinius' census. First census, because there was another census. Apparently this was a botched one that didn't complete. But anyways, Luke makes a reference to a census. Romans would not send people away from their homes to get uh, signed off for a census during winter. It was not their practice. And from Zechariah, or from Luke, who says that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, who was a priest of the family of Abijah, he was ministering during the time that Zechariah had to because of his priestly family. Some people have made the numbers. And if you take, okay, Zechariah left the tabernacle or the temple, went home, Elizabeth conceived, and six months later, Mary conceived. Well, the one who was probably born in December was John the Baptist, and Jesus perhaps was born around September, October. Now, I'm not ready to put my head and sign that with blood. The point is that there seems to be evidence against a birth of Jesus on December the 25th, a lot of evidence that says, no, this was a Christianized pagan feast. What shall we do then? And then that brings us to the sermon. Okay, thank you. So, what do we do? Do we do what I did when I was young and stupid? That I would stand up in front of a shopping mall with a piece of paper? Because some crazy dude who was a mentally unstable individual, 
taught me to do that. And my piece of paper said, Christmas, a time God abhors. Turn and repent. Is that what we should do? I don't recommend that. What should we do? Well, let's look at the biblical text and consider what is Christmas about. Since the world celebrates it, and let me say this, my favorite time of the year, I love it. It's so favorite that I love to hear Christmas songs that speak about Jesus and hymns sung on the radio celebrating the birth of Christ. No, I'm not a a Christmas basher. And sorry to disappoint you if you are from the radical wing of fundamentalism. I used to be there, but I'm not there anymore. What do we do with Christmas? Well, what's the introduction of the king in Matthew chapter 1? There's a genealogy that I did read. Poor Carlos once had to read the genealogy in Matthew. And I remember, he says, I came prepared to read something else. Why did you make me read that? He says, brother, I'm sorry. I didn't want to do that. If Carlos couldn't read it well, imagine me with my accent. So no, I would not, I would not read it. But the king is introduced with a genealogy. Because genealogies are used in scripture to prove legitimacy and to prove belonging. In Genesis, we find the genealogies of Adam, Cain, Seth. Why? To prove connection with the people that are being listed in the book of Chronicles. The genealogies are repeated so they could register those returning from Babylon as Jewish people belonging to the people of Israel. The kings of Judah were traced to David. Why? Because to David was promised the kingdom in Israel forever. So genealogies have this purpose of legitimizing people, legitimizing families, legitimizing a nation. And the genealogy of Jesus points to a covenant or to the covenant. Matthew and Luke both trace Jesus to the covenant people. They trace Jesus to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Why? Because to them... God promised the seed that would bless the nations, and that seed is Messiah. And also, they point Jesus to the covenant king, because to David from the house of Judah was promised a kingdom that would be an everlasting kingdom. So both gospel writers take Jesus and present him with the legitimacy and the imprimatur than tracing tracing his genealogy to the covenant people and to the covenant king would bring. And then, of course, the genealogy of Jesus also points to his humanity. That's why Luke takes the genealogy all the way to Adam. If you read the Gospel of Jude, you'll find the expression, the Son of Man, to refer to Jesus many times. Why? Because Luke wants to make sure that people identify this Messiah with a human being, the God-man, the man God sent as a Redeemer. Now, let me make a, perhaps a practical note about Jesus' genealogy, especially the one in Matthew, but it, it applies to both. Hebrews 2.14 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. And the text says that he came to save his people from their sins. What people? Let me give a little trick to my friends who are theologically astute and trained. 
we read Matthew 1.21 as a proof of Calvinism. There's a little problem. Matthew 1.21 was written 16, 1700 years before Calvin. So Matthew 1.21 is not written to prove anything about Calvinism. When it says he came to save his people from their sins, you know what people are those? The ones listed in the genealogy. And who are they? Isaac and Jacob. Jacob the deceiver, the liar, the trickster, who had the guts to even try to negotiate with God. Judah, the father of Perez, by Tamar. <laughs> I love it. I love it, those details. Judah. You know who Judah was? It was a guy who didn't want to keep his promise to his daughter-in-law and went into a prostitute. He went and found a harlot. You know who the harlot was? His daughter-in-law who had these guys as a harlot to get him in to fulfill his promise. He says, what the heck is that? I don't, I don't know. It's in the Bible. Those are the covenant people. Summon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Another harlot from Jericho, a Gentile town. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Ruth, the Moabite, the Gentile, who came to Israel following her mother-in-law. But she was a Moabite. And then David, the father of Solomon. And it's as if it were on purpose, by Jezebel the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Really? Yes, the covenant king, the assassin, who killed a man who was righteous and who was a God-fearing man, honest and upright, because he wanted to take his wife. And the wife was part of the plot, of course. Because she could have screamed. She could have said, no. Well, from that disaster was born Solomon. Solomon, yes, the idolater who had 700 concubines and three wives and became an idolater after God appeared to him and told him, ask me whatever you want. He says, make me wise, great petition. I'll give you wisdom and riches like no one else had. And he ends up worshiping Moloch and Baal and building temples for them. What a wicked man. And then Rehoboam, in whose pride the kingdom was split in two, And then Manasseh, the most evil king ever who lived in Israel. Though he repented at the end. So you read that, and you say, wow, yeah, he came to save his people from their sins. If you want to use the Old Testament to read stories to your children and moralize them, let me break the bad news to you. Don't do it. Don't do it. If you want to use David or Samson... To be the hero. Don't do it. Because you're going to have a hard time explaining the real mess up of their lives. Because the book is not about them. And it's not about morality. The book is about the one who came to save his people from their sins. And he is not ashamed to call us brethren. Do you get the point of the book? I wish I would have learned that at 20. I learned it after my I was 50. All these years wasted teaching morality and religion instead of telling them, go to Jesus. 
He's a friend of sinners. Go to him. Repent. It's about him. It's not about us. Two, the birth of the king. A virgin birth. The Hebrew word in Isaiah, it's a young woman will conceive. It was a sign given to Isaiah, was a sign given to the king about the withdrawing of the Assyrians. But Matthew takes it again and says, yes, it happened 750 years ago. But the true fulfillment happened when Christ was born. A virgin would conceive. Why? Because in the law, they had this type that blessed is the male that opens the womb. It's all pointing to Christ. One day, one will come who will open the womb. Messiah, the prophet promised by Moses. The one who would be the redeemer, the savior, the righteousness of God would come and open the womb of his mother. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She was a virgin when he was conceived in her womb. Now, a theological note. The conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit is not about Mary. It's not because Mary now is always virgin. That's a dogma that was invented by the church many years ago, but it's not biblical. The text says Joseph had relationships with her once she had the baby. And Jesus had brothers and sisters who, who are even named in Matthew thirteen forty eight. Jesus was conceived of the, of the Holy Spirit, not for the sake of the, of the virgin, was conceived of the Holy Spirit because a pre-existing person, the Son of God, the one who was face-to-face with God in the beginning, had to assume and take upon himself a human nature, and because not a new person could have been formed, but one that already existed, now became man, the Holy Spirit was the one who conceived him in the mother, in the womb of his mother. And he was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Ephraim, Bethlehem Ephrata, as Micah 5.2 calls it, born in a manger. Oh, we thought, oh, a manger was that little nice crib, that little Moses basket we had when Miguel was born, and we had, oh, that's a manger. No, a manger was what animals ate. That was, that was really a... Bad place. If you've been to a farm, if you've been to a farm with big cows, big animals, big big goats, whatever, you see where they eat. Jesus was born where animals eat, when they put the food for animals. That's where the king of kings was born, from a poor family. So poor that according to the law, if you were too poor to present an animal for the offering, you were allowed to bring two turtle doves. Doves that were sold for pennies in the market. That's all you had. It's okay. Bring, 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 bring a little, little birdie that just cost pennies. That's what Joseph and Mary had to offer because they didn't have for more. They didn't have to buy for uh, a, a big sheep or, or a heifer for the offering. And then he was from Galilee. I love that part. <laughs> Talking to some friends the other day. Says, you know why, why the whole thing of Jesus being from Galilee, right? They were the ones that had the, that had the funny accent. They were despised. Nathaniel says, from Galilee, something good? The Pharisees said, how do these Galileans have this knowledge? Peter talking, you sound like them. They had this funny, uncultured, undistinguished, kind of, you know, uneducated ebonics about their talk. Even there. Jesus humbled himself 
he didn't come as a pristine, educated, well-cultured speaker who could engage the culture in New York, even though my favorite preacher is there. But no, he came as one who was despised among men. And then finally, the biblical meaning of Christian, of Christmas, I'm sorry. And what is that biblical meaning of Christmas? Well, the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? What's a mystery? Mystery is something that has not been revealed to that point. And behold, the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. God was revealed in flesh. And this is being written by a rabbi, by a Jewish rabbi, who persecuted Christians to the point of death. Because he didn't want them to go back to the idolatry that brought, that brought the deportations to Assyria and to Babylon. So he persecuted them to death. When Stephen was being stoned, guys, can you picture a person being stoned to death? We read those things too fast. A person is being stoned to death. And there's Saul of Tarsus. And when he is killed, bleeding, deformed by the rocks, they bring his garments and throw them at his feet. And I would imagine him. You say, what a cruel individual is Paul, is Saul. Well, yes, but you know why he did it? He said it. I did it in ignorance. I did it out of zeal for God. God knows that I meant for real what I did. But I didn't know. What did he not know? That God was manifest in the flesh. That Yahweh was Jesus. That thought is mind-boggling. Do you want to know about God? Yes, that's why I read Sproul and Piper and Arthur Pink. No, read the Gospels. Please read the Gospels and see who God is. Please read your Bible. Read the Gospels and see Jesus dealing with a Samaritan woman. Please see Jesus dealing with sinners. And then please see him dealing with the religious Pharisees. And you'll know who God is. I don't know if this is my last sermon. I always preach it as if I were the last, as if it were the last. But I'm up to here with the self-righteousness of religion. These holy guys who are always posting moralistic things on Facebook. And they are the best. And they have the right theology and the right church and the right music and the right everything. Please see Jesus. Woman, who are those who condemn you? <laughs> are they gone? Yes, Lord, they're gone. Go sin no more. That's Jesus. Call your husband. I don't have a husband. I know. You've had five. And the guy you're hooking up with now is not even your husband. That's Jesus. Isn't that the Jesus you want when you blow it? That's the one I want. When I'm really, when I really blow it, I says, please, please, I'm the thief on the cross. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Yes, yes, I'm the blaspheming thief. But remember me. Well, 
That's Christmas. God manifested in the flesh. The Logos became man. My, I don't know if that's my favorite text or my favorite combination. I could even quote it in Greek and impress you, but I don't know a squad of Greek, of Greek so I'm not going to do it. But in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was face to face with God. And the Word was God, the Logos. You Greeks who read Plato, like your Logos, that immovable mover, that cause and origin of all things, well, let me tell you, says John, in the beginning, the Logos of your Plato, that Logos was face to face with God, was in the presence of God, and that Logos was God. And the Logos became flesh. And he pitched his tent among us. And we saw his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's why his name is Emmanuel. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. God with us. Literally, God came to be like one of us. God pitched his stand among us. Jesus, Yeshua, he shall save his people from their sins. And that's us. Conclusion. I don't even know how I did this so fast, but yeah, it's a conclusion. Good for you guys. Questions from those who are strict. Perhaps somebody's listening to this and saying, well, Christmas is of the devil. So, was Jesus born on December the 25th? Nope. He was not. Is Christmas a New Testament prescribed celebration? Nope. Christmas decorations biblical? Nope. Is caroling biblical? Nope. Did the early church take advantage of paganism to institutionalize Christmas? Yes. They did all of that. And? Point being? Now, let me make a note. On nativity scenes, brought in by St. Francis of Assisi in the Middle Ages. I'll say it. (laughs) I'll say it. There's a commandment that says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath. Thou shalt not bow down yourself to them or worship them. Well, I don't worship nativity scenes. No, I know. I'm not saying you do. But the text says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. And God says, Did you see anything when you were in the mountain? Did you see any figure? Anything? No. And... Don't make yourselves anything because I'm not like anything. So my problem with the nativity scene is that. Is the, is the baby Jesus. Happy birthday, Jesus. Well, Jesus is not any baby Jesus. He was once. Yes, part of his humiliation. But you know what John saw? John, the beloved apostle. John was the guy who, who was like, they were eating together. And John is like this at the table. Like, for you guys on this side. 
And this is Jesus' shoulder. And they're reading together. And Jesus says, one of you guys is going to betray me. And John, who's there, says, and Jesus says, I'll show you. Dips the bread, passes to Judah, to Judas. That's, that's the closeness that John had with Jesus. He was a 17-year-old boy, and he was the beloved disciple. And all the other guys knew Jesus loves John more than us. I don't think so, but he was the beloved disciple. John sees Jesus in the island of Patmos. And he sees him in glory. His face was brighter than the sun. Don't do that. It's dangerous. You could lose your eyesight. But try to see the sun at at zenith. Impossible. Don't do it. Get blind. John says, the sun paled compared to that. I saw him in glory. And when I saw that, and I saw his hair, and his eyes, and his face, I fell dead at his feet. You know what Jesus did? John, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's me. The same, same guy you, you were leaning against. It's me. It's okay. You're okay. But Jesus had to do that for him. And come to him redemptively. So be careful of teaching your children happy birthday baby Jesus. Tell your children Jesus is in glory. Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Reigning until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. That's all I have to say about nativity scenes. It's up to you what you do after that. Now my questions for those who are strict is, well, what's wrong with using the occasion to remember that God became man? What's wrong with using the occasion to remind people of his death? What's wrong with redeeming the culture for Christ and the gospel? Let me tell you, what do you think it's going to be more winsome and more gospel transmitting and gospel enlightening? To say, I don't celebrate Christmas because it's of the devil and it's pagan? Or to use Christmas to remind people of why he came? I finish with this passage from 1 Corinthians 14.20. Brethren, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil... Be children, but in your thinking, be adults. I don't think Christmas is a Christian tradition, but I bless God for the king who was born, and for the king who came to die, and for the king who came to save his people from their sins. Amen. Amen. Father, bless your word. Bless your word. I pray for the season that you use us and those who celebrate, whether they know, whether they do not know. The name of Christ is mentioned. He's celebrated. He's heralded. I pray, Father, that you choose to be glorified, that you even use the occasion, and even the songs on the radio, even the lyrics of hymns that are biblical, 
to bring people to the knowledge of him who came to save people from their sins, his people from their sins, to celebrate the name of Emmanuel, the God who came to be with us, to be one of us, and to die in our place, in whose name we pray. Amen.